Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of Real Leaders Podcast. Glad you could join us. This is a completely inverted episode of this podcast. As those of you who listen often know, I am Sue Heilbronner, and I generally invite amazing leader guests here, and I'd conduct an interview of them. But today, I am joined by my extraordinary business partner, Elizabeth Krauss, who is my co-founder and the chief investment officer of MergeLane. Hey, Elizabeth. Hello. Instead of interviewing you today, you want to interview me. Is that right? Exactly. This is going to be fun. I think so. I mean, it'll be fun for us, regardless of whether it's fun for anyone else. We always have fun. All right. Well, let's jump in. Go head over to you, Elizabeth. So, Sue, why don't you start with your quick three-minute life story? That's <laughs> pretty funny since I ask that all the time. I've never been asked it. I began my life surrounded by lawyers, pretty much. Uh, lawyers and a lot of gambling, a lot of poker. My mom is like semi-professional poker player. So I had lawyers and then I had a lot of unusual behavior. I spent a lot of time in Vegas as a kid. But if we go back to the lawyers, the thing that really influenced me as I was growing up is verbal acumen and the ability to argue well verbally was super valued in my family. In fact, it was really the main way you gained credit in my family. I think as a function of that, I decided fairly young that I wanted to be a lawyer. But more than that, I decided very young that I wanted to be a federal prosecuting attorney, which some of you may know that the jobs that pay the least, like government jobs, are actually the most sought after jobs, particularly for lawyers. But I think it's true in a lot of professions. From about age 11, I set out to be a federal prosecutor in the United States Justice Department. And I went to Duke Law School and I eventually worked at a law firm after clerking for a judge and did get lucky enough to get connected to the Justice Department. I worked in two different divisions of justice. First, I worked in financial crimes. And second, I got really the piece de resistance for a very, very verbal, very liberal kid from Miami, which is a role as a prosecutor in the Civil Rights Division. Now, that's a little bit weird because most people think that, well, if you're a prosecutor, that feels anti-civil rights. But actually what this division did was pretty unique. We prosecuted bad cops, cops who went too far, people who harmed people because of their race, ethnicity, or national origin. And we also went after people who did bad things to abortion providers and abortion clinics. And that was my job. So like, that was amazing. I was traveling all over the United States. I was trying cases in very weird places. Civil rights violations occur in a lot of places like Florence, South Carolina, where I spent months of my life. And at some point with this plum job in law, I looked up and I thought, wait, something isn't exactly right. And I had the impression that my creative energy wasn't really being tapped enough in the professional law. So I tried something. I started moonlighting. I started an internet company in my basement in 1999. And it was an e-commerce company that was super easy to set up even in 1999. To be honest with you, Elizabeth, I was in the right place at the right time with totally the wrong expertise. So it went really great. I sold baby clothes. That was weird. I don't have a baby. That won't fit into three minutes. When I sold some of these baby clothes for like $6.99 to customers at a trade show, and when I'd show up at the post office with 42 boxes to ship, I just realized that I absolutely love business. I was able to sell my company. I ultimately was able to get a really good job at a real company, Discovery Communications, the parent company of Discovery Channel and another 15 television networks. 
and I decided to resign my position as a lawyer. I worked at Discovery for a few years. I learned business from people who actually knew what they were doing. I learned Excel for the first time on my first day and eventually realized that actually I'm too rebellious to work in a large company. So my startup journey began in 2005. And for the last 11 years, I've been in operating roles, CEO roles of companies. And that actually led me to you and to the founding of Mergelane. And here we are. You named this podcast Real Leaders. I'm curious, what do you think is the most important quality that you have that makes you a quote unquote real leader? The only way I can answer that question is to think, and by the way, it's worth noting that I have no idea what Elizabeth's going to ask today. I only really have feedback to go on. So I don't feel like I'm a direct person. I don't experience myself that way. I just experience myself as myself. I've been the same way my entire life. I'm not this way because I was a lawyer. I was a lawyer because I am very direct and very available to be an interesting conflict. I think that authenticity, my willingness to give direct, authentic feedback and to acknowledge that almost everything I say could easily be wrong, it's just my opinion, I think has set me apart as a leader. I think the people who have worked with me and for me, trust me. You know, that really leads well into one of the principles that you really care about, which is conscious leadership. Well, wait, I want to ask, Elizabeth, do you think that's true? What I just said? I mean, you work with me, you've worked with me every day for two and a half years. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think you are exceptionally talented in delivering on point, direct feedback. I don't think I've met anybody who can do that better than you. I think you do a couple other things that make you be able to deliver that feedback in a way that people will listen. So yeah, so you know, that leads well into conscious leadership. What does conscious leadership mean to you? And how do you use it? I think conscious leadership is rapidly becoming a buzzword. But the cool thing about that is it just means that it's on the minds of a lot of people, which really, really makes me happy. And I think it's got multiple interpretations. The way I hold the concept of conscious leadership is just present leadership. It's really heavily integrated with this concept of authenticity, creating a transparent workspace where everyone is permitted to be candid and everyone is available to be spoken to in a candid way. It's based on a belief that we're all working together as allies, this idea of dog eat dog and needing to beat out the other people in your organization or outside of your organization in order to win. It's based on a theory that life isn't a zero sum game, that there actually are wins for all that we can create in our own leadership. And I suppose that's what it means to me. My grounding in conscious leadership, the version that I pay attention to, comes from Kelly Klemp, Jim Dethmer, and Diana Chapman, who wrote a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. It's a fantastic read. How do you use conscious leadership in your everyday life and in your working relationships? And in my personal relationship, all of my relationships. So just today, I asked my significant other if he had any withholds. And you know what that means because we've worked together for a long time. So we hold to this like candor is such a ridiculously amorphous concept. What does it really mean to be candid? And how do you create more opportunities? So this version of conscious leadership has a concept that if you have thought something three times or more that you have not shared with someone else in your organization or in your life, That's characterized as a withhold, and it makes sense because if you've thought it three or more times and you haven't shared it, it's obviously something that's bubbling inside your system. 
So I asked my partner, as I've asked you many times, do you have any withholds that you need to get clean on with me? That's one way I use it. I use it not only daily, I use it hourly. That's not always easy. When someone gives me feedback, I have the reaction, you know, we know that reaction. Hey, Sue, I have some feedback for you. I'm not in no way to the point of mindfulness where that strikes me like a warm breeze or a light feather on my shoulder. I still steal myself for what that feedback's going to be. When we practice this as often as we do in our organization, Elizabeth, you and I still have conflicts. They come up. But the funny thing about them is they just get smaller and smaller. It's like sifting flour. The grains get smaller and smaller if you pay attention to staying in integrity with your colleagues. It also means good agreements. But the question of how I use it, every company I work with inside and outside Merge Lane gets exposed to this work of conscious leadership. I sometimes go in and, you know, with our portfolio companies, talk about marketing and growth strategy, but usually the most transformative work that I do with companies isn't based on the content. It's based on the context, which is really the grounding of not what issues are arising or what facts are arising, but from what place or what context are those issues arising? And it's pretty powerful stuff. You asked earlier what I thought about your answer of what makes you a real leader. And I think that that's one of the biggest differences that you make. You you don't just deal with the surfacey how to do marketing, how to do finance. You go a much, much deeper level to really get at what's happening. I'm glad you feel that way. You know, one of the other things that I think makes you an exceptional leader is your ability to spot talent and leverage your personal strengths and then your personal weaknesses by surrounding yourself with the right people. Did you bring that up just to tee up my conversation about you? Of course. But naturally. Of course. That's absolutely genius. Yes. And then, I mean, we'll got to talk about you. We can talk about Hannah Davis, our program director. It's the same thing. So I was listening to This American Life yesterday, which is really the podcast of all podcasts, in my opinion. And there was this conversation about how we make all of our most important decisions with intuition instead of facts. And this scientist was on there saying, you know, that's just foolishness. Like the idea that you would pick a marital partner based on intuition is ridiculous. The truth is I rely heavily on my gut instinct about people. And truly the best decision that I've ever made in business, this is more significant than the idea of Merge Lane, which you know came up for me in a dinner and I called you that night. The best decision I've ever made in my career period is asking you to be my co-founder in Merge Lane. Wow. It's true gets better every day, that decision. And people ask how that happened, and they don't generally believe that the way it happened is that we met for 30 minutes three or four years ago for one meeting that didn't actually go anywhere. Then I saw you at a couple of events for investors, and I noticed that you were asking these incredibly incisive questions, but you were so much more polished and kind about how you asked those questions. And I noticed how you worked a room and how successfully you did it. And authentically, like you're not a bullshitter, you're real. People want to be connected to you because you're extraordinary at what you do. You have a tremendous, probably one of the best in the country sense of how to make investments as an angel. All the experience you were bringing to bear in your angel impact group that you had founded and ultimately sold. And when I came up with this idea at dinner, I literally wrote the idea down, accelerator for companies led by at least one woman, and right under it, I wrote your name. Not only did I have a great instinct about who you were and what your core values were, 
But I also had a very strong sense that you and I would be incredibly complimentary founders. And we are, right? I think so. Thank you, first of all. But I would like to remind you that this is an interview of you. This is so a love fest back podcast. To back to Real you. love fest. <laughs> no, but it's true. It's an amazing example. Then Hannah Davis, our program director. By the way, it's worth noting that Elizabeth and I spend some time, and, and Hannah, our team, we also spend some time on personality typing systems. And we use a system called the Enneagram. And my Enneagram type is eight. For those of you who speak Enneagram, if you don't go to some website about the Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, and look it up. And Elizabeth is a type one. Now, that means that I generally operate from gut, and Elizabeth applies very exacting standards to how she makes decisions. So I called Elizabeth the night I came up with the idea and said, please do this, and I won't do it unless you do it with me, having only sat down with her for a half an hour. And then we spent the next six weeks going on long walks with 47 item agendas that Elizabeth had prepared doing her due diligence on working together. It's just another example of how complimentary things are. And then Hannah's the same deal. You know, I walked into the hub one day where Hannah had really been one of the early creators of the hub, the impact hub in Boulder. And I ran into her and she gave me a little card because I had, I guess, helped her with something, you know, months previous to that. And I looked at her and I thought, oh, you're the perfect third person. You're our perfect program director. And that worked out too. I'm, yeah. I'm sure it doesn't work out sometimes. I'm sure it doesn't. But I block all those. <laughs> <laughs> you do have an amazing ability to just forget some of those things that yeah. don't work out so it's really well. handy. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Nice. That's really important for a gut instinct type person. I also think you have the ability to really help people get rid of the blockages that they have in their life to actually meet their full potential. And you've definitely helped me with that. Where does that come from? How do you do that? You know, the question of how I do it is a hard one to answer. I think for as long as I could remember, I've had, and again, this is all totally subjective, but I've had what I believe is a really, really good eye for talent. And beyond that, I tend to see talent and then I sort of am able to extrapolate that person's talent in the moment I meet them and what it will look like 10 years hence. When you have the ability to do that, it's usually really easy to see what's in the way. So I met you. You had built a fantastic organization called the Impact Angel Group. And you were working really hard at it. And you still work really hard. But I thought, this is kind of intimate. You'll tell me if this is okay or not. But it was my impression that the game that you were playing with Impact Angel Group could be taken to a level that was 10x or 100x of that game. And that there were a lot of reasons you were really committed to keeping it the size it was. The stuff that you were good at, you were good at at that level. And I just, it was very obvious to me that you could use everything you were good at at a whole different level. And then we could actually just snap our fingers, come up with a more compelling idea that people would just organically rally around and then put your talent back into it. And that that would be alchemy. There's a couple interesting things in there. So one is we both had some hesitations around aligning ourselves with this woman specific cause. And that is actually what the bigger game was. And what enabled us to really go a level beyond what we were. So talk a little bit 
about that. So I think you and I both had a lot of ambivalence about throwing all of our resources, our personal brands into this topic of female, even of diversity. And I think the reason is we'd both been very successful in worlds that had nothing to do with our gender. We both had a little bit of reservation about being called a female investor, or I certainly did, or a female CEO. I didn't really like that categorization. And I think what I felt is that it would minimize my impact if I signed up to just focus on this issue. Like I can play golf and I can play basketball and then sometimes I can go swimming and I can do all of those things. And nobody ever says, well, that's Sue. She's just a basketball player. They definitely don't say that about me. But there's something about signing on to the issue of diversity, especially in tech, that I think can minimize your broader message. And I think that's what I was worried about. And so when I really sat with that, and I don't know what your story is about this, but when I really sat with that, I thought, that's crazy. If I'm worried about being marginalized because I'm talking about creating a diversity impact in tech, if I'm worried about that, then we're never going to solve diversity in tech. Because if I'm not going to speak up about it, nobody will. And candidly, I still have reservations about it. You came to me and said, I think we should start an accelerator for companies with at least one woman in leadership. Originally, I thought, no way. I have zero interest in that. And it was for a lot of reasons, but mostly, like you said, I didn't want to marginalize myself as a business person with a network made up mostly of men by focusing on women. And as you said, you're a type eight and are quite persuasive. And you sat me down and said, listen, I really think that you should take a second look at this for three reasons. Number one, I think the investors you've been working with are going to be thrilled with the opportunity to invest in more women. Number two, there's all this research out there saying that investing in companies that have at least one woman produces better returns. And number three, you and I are uniquely talented at leveraging the strengths and complementing the weaknesses innate to female leaders. And I had given so little thought to the fact that I was a woman that I had no idea what those innate qualities even were. (laughs) (laughs) So like Sue said, I, uh, of course, did exhaustive research about that and realized as I saw these common qualities that they were the root cause of some of my biggest wins and some of my biggest losses as an entrepreneur. And so that's why I said yes. Huh, you never told me that. I didn't really figure it out until that. (laughs) until not that long ago. It's interesting because it's done the exact opposite of marginalizing us. We've sold out every event we've planned. We've oversubscribed every investment fund. Thank you, Elizabeth. And (laughs) our investors. Yeah. You know, here's my theory about this, though. I think our ambivalence about it is our single greatest asset in generating interest and alliances around what we're doing. Because I think if we were totally like, let's do this, we probably would have created a nonprofit. And I think the fact that we created a for-profit vehicle because we believe that there was a great play in investing in women, we're not the only ones on the planet doing it, but there aren't that many. And I think that's a huge thing. I think some of these decisions that we made, the fact that our accelerators for men and women The fact that we have basically a 50-50 split, by the way, we didn't even try, and we have almost a 50-50 split both among our mentors and among our investors is crazy. So in some ways, oddly, I think our hesitation is really the critical thing that's made us 
I don't want to say we're successful. Let's see if I'll talk to you in five years and hopefully our investor returns are going to meet our expectations and those of our investors. But it certainly allowed us to make a more resonant impact during our first two years. Shortly after Sue had tried to twist my arm to do this, we had one of our first meetings with Seth Levine, who's a partner at Foundry Group, which is one of the most respected venture capital firms in the world. He essentially said, yes, I will invest in you if you do this. And I've thought a lot about why did we get that first yes that really is so important to entrepreneurs and to women. I think it's because he knew that we'd do this in a way that was going to be inclusive of men, that was compelling to women, and that we had the credentials to do it. And I think that's why we've been able to do this. Why an accelerator, though? That That's a really, really good question. Do you want to explain what an accelerator is? That's a good idea. And you might... A traditional, and I use that term lightly since they've only been around for about 10 years, a traditional accelerator, our accelerator, was forged in the vein of Techstars, which I think from our perspective is the single best accelerator in the world. And it is an investment fund and a mentor-driven 12-week immersive program that makes investments in very select startups at a relatively early stage and then takes them through a boot camp-like mentor-assisted program to help accelerate their progress as businesses. So why an accelerator? Well, you know, to be honest with you, you know that a big catalyst for this entire idea of doing anything around women is that I went to an event put on by a group I really respect, and I went to a panel around marketing, and the panel, which was on digital marketing, comprised six people, and every single one of them was a male wearing gray pants, a navy blazer, and a tie. It was a panel on marketing. There are tens of thousands of women who could have spoken ably on this topic. So that put me over the edge. When I looked around at classes and other leading accelerators, I was really dismayed that when I went to demo days, this is three years ago, I'd go and there'd be 10 presenting companies and there'd be 10 presenters and they were all male. And I still believe and believe then in the value an accelerator can play in a startup journey. I've been a Techstars mentor for five years. I knew how valuable that program was to companies. And I thought, well, that's great. There's this insanely valuable thing that's serving like 95% men, not just Techstars, YC, all these top accelerators. And I thought, well, that's crazy. I didn't think that those accelerators were biased in their selection process. You and I talked about this. I believe that women-led companies simply weren't applying because they didn't think they were quote-unquote ready or qualified or didn't know about accelerators. And I wanted to change that. And I wasn't thinking we were going to change the world. Our hashtag is change the ratio. I figure, well, we'll have an accelerator. We'll have one class. We'll take 10 companies. Every one of them will have a female in executive leadership. And so we'll change the ratio no matter what else we do. Plus... We both were mentors. I mean, we're both good at working with people and we both love working with companies and we both love making investments in companies. So it seemed like a really natural fit for not only something that we could do that would make an impact, but something that we could do. So how do you think about your decision to start an accelerator now? How an accelerator is successful, and I'm going to use that broadly because from my perspective, Elizabeth, it doesn't matter what we do. You know, if we go home now and shutter or merge lane, we're not doing that. But if we do that, I'm pretty satisfied that we've already established the value with investments that we've made over two years of running this program 
in extraordinary companies, many of whom have gone on to raise follow-on rounds, hired a couple hundred employees. Like we've really seen some momentum. But some of you may know that an accelerator really is an investment vehicle. So it's going to take, we estimate, or the world estimates, between five and seven years for us to start seeing meaningful investor returns. So how I feel is, this is a heck of a lot of work. And most of the time, I feel like, wow, this is really worth it. I feel like everything about my career has been, I am 10 times more effective by virtue of being associated with a company we built. I feel enormously grateful. We've been able to connect with amazing leaders as a function of having this program and having this brand. Amazing investors were asked to do ridiculous things, things that we would have begged to do three years ago. We now have the privilege of sort of being kind of selective about. That's great because I think every time we show up to something, we stand for this principle that investing in women is smart. I love that. Talk a little bit about Innovation Camp and what led us to that. Yeah. So Innovation Camp is a five-day program that's designed not only for startup founders, but for people in any type of organization or career path. So it could be a nonprofit. It could be a leader in industry. It could be a leader in education. And of course, it could be a startup founder who wants to radically accelerate their capacity to innovate in their job or in their career. We came up with the idea that we could do a five-day program. We are, by the way, as you know, Elizabeth, asked all the time, hey, why don't you come to our city and create a 12-week program called Merge Lane? Yeah, we're probably not going to do that. You know, it's not our ambition to run 20 programs a year. It's our ambition to find the very best companies and to do one program a year headquartered in Boulder. But we do want to have more reach. And I guess Innovation Camp was a way that we could have more reach. And I've learned through teaching entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado that people in all kinds of organizations can benefit from work like the Lean Startup or work like Design Center Thinking or work like Conscious Leadership, that they can really radically change their leadership trajectory. And 12 weeks for an existing company that's early stage, that's probably a short amount of time. Five days is even shorter, but I know we're going to make an impact with that program. Talk a little bit more about who the perfect person for Innovation Camp would be. I think the perfect person is somebody who feels like they want more creativity in their organization or the division of their company or their nonprofit. And they think they can be the catalyst for that, but they want a bigger tool set that they can actually deploy immediately after leaving Innovation Camp. We're going to give them both some shifts in perspective on mindset and we're going to back that up with readily accessible, executable tools. And that person's going to be pretty satisfied with that one week of their life. You have this theory that people receive the same piece of feedback through their entire life. And no matter how hard they work on it, it rears its ugly head and they get the same feedback. What is that piece of feedback for you? Mine, without a doubt, is, Sue, it's not what you said. It's how you said it. And I mean, Elizabeth, I'm telling you, someone will say it to me like tomorrow. It'll have you said it to me. You said, remember, you said it to me in front of a lot of people one time, speaking of authentic and transparent leadership. I always want to say, but wait a minute, do you know what a jerk I was 10 years ago? Like, I am really trying. And the fact is, it doesn't matter because 
whatever it is that I'm putting out there is still being received in the same way. So I'm the kind of person who can see from A to B really quickly and I can know how to get there and all the little moving parts that have to happen. When something comes up and it's an interference, I don't always react well. One thing that we've done in our partnership that has really been game changing is for somebody like me who gets that feedback, like email was a devilish tool. I mean, you can really, really be an a-hole way more easily on email than face-to-face or on the phone. And you know I can't stand the phone. But I'm. you have taught me that when something pisses me off at 6.20 in the morning, first of all, you're always awake and you don't usually have another meeting. I just call you. And facing you directly and realizing there's a real human over there with tons of positive instincts and intent and having a real conversation has been pretty game-changing. So I mentioned before that you are extremely talented at helping people realize their full potential. What is the one thing that's preventing you from reaching your full potential? I think I'm still ultimately not willing to believe that what I have to give is worth all that much. So when I think about stuff I love to do, I love speaking to big groups of people. I think I'm not bad at it. I'm pretty good at it. Am I great? Am I the greatest speaker ever? And I just get in my own way with that. The good thing is I surround myself with people who help me see it when it happens at the micro level, but at the macro level, I'm not totally bought in. This is the great thing about transformation of a person. There's tons and tons of evidence. Look over there. They valued for this or look over there that you were valued for that. But it doesn't matter because it's just my mindset about worthiness and there is no evidence that could contravene it. That's another thing I've been working on, you know, pretty darn hard for the last 20 years. So I'll keep working on it. But it's another reason that I think I'm able to see potential, particularly in women leaders. While I think all of us have issues around imposter syndrome and all that other stuff, I think women listen to it on average more than men. So it's so easy for me to see it in other people and just really hard to see it myself. Say lovey. Say lovey. So since this is your podcast, I'm going to pass it back to you. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. A true, real leader in my book and lots of people's books. We are joined today by Elizabeth Krauss, the one and only co-founder and chief investment officer for MergeLane, the investment accelerator for companies with at least one female in leadership. As you know, this podcast is always brought to you by MergeLane. Our innovation camp runs from November 7th to November 11th. It'll be headquartered in Boulder, Colorado. If you want to learn more about innovation camp or sign up, please visit us at MergeLane.com. Our new accelerator class starts in February of 2017. Applications for that class will open in mid-September of 2016. We look forward to hearing from all of you companies with at least one female in leadership. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Real Leaders Radio.